Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Recently, a young friend married to a man with two beautiful children emerged from a garage sale with a copy of Glennon Doyle's Untamed tucked under her arm. I buy copies to give my girlfriends who are struggling with parenting, she explained, or whose marriages are on the rocks. I laughed out loud at the part about marriages. Glennon Doyle, a best-selling Christian author, famously and very publicly propped up her serially unfaithful evangelical husband and wrote very convincingly about saving her marriage until soccer great Abby Wambach literally walked into her life and Glennon is now Abby's wife. There's a passage in Untamed that I reflect on It's the moment after Glennon tells the aforementioned husband that she's making her exit from their marriage. Here it is. He was very quiet, she writes. And after a long while, he said, three years ago, you gave me more grace than I deserved. Now I'm going to return it to you. I want you to be happy. The concept of giving someone grace, extending unearned kindness is very powerful. I really appreciate that it doesn't get into the mire of forgiveness. Giving grace is something different. It's what American author Brad Meltzer was talking about when he said, Everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind, always. Grace, it's a beautiful word. It can mean elegance or refinement or movement as well as goodwill. It can mean unmerited favor. We speak of a grace period when we extend a deadline. Grace is a disposition to compassion. Grace. From the Latin via Old French via Middle English word meaning grateful. Giving someone grace doesn't mean excusing bad behavior. It's not about them. It's about us. Giving grace only means extending Compassion. Compassion is probably another sermon, but let's just give it a beat. Science tells us that practicing compassion produces 100% more DHEA, which is a hormone that counteracts the aging process, and 23% less cortisol, the stress hormone. People who are compassionate and those around them are happier. 
And there's nothing stunning about those conclusions. Being judgmental and bearing grudges really eats up a lot of mental and emotional energy. There's a great teaching tale from American spiritual leader Ram Dass, a story he told on himself. Years ago, he said, I went to a silent meditation retreat, a 10-day course, and I had a roommate. We couldn't speak to each other because silent. The corners on his sheets were all neat on his bed, and his clothes were all lined up. I was a little sloppy. Neatness is not my particular preoccupation. He says, I started to feel that he was thinking I was a real slob, and he didn't like me. And I was probably snoring and disturbing him, and I got to feeling actually that he really hated me. You know, within the silence, you can play with such wonderful paranoia. And I just decided, I mean, by the end of it, I hated him for hating me. <laughs> so he came out of the retreat, and the first thing he said to me, the first thing was, I cannot tell you what an honor it's been sharing this room with you, Ramdas. And I just thought, oh, expletive. I wasted hours being absolutely convinced he hated me, filling my consciousness with it for 10 days when I could have been getting enlightened. Sometimes we have to extend grace to ourselves. If we struggle with giving grace, there's a spiritual practice that can help. It's called the commonality practice. You can, you could even try it right now. You can focus your attention on someone or something that has wronged you and just run this sequence. Just like me, they are seeking happiness. Just like me, they are trying to avoid suffering. Just like me, they are sometimes sad and lonely. Just like me, they are trying to get their needs met. Just like me, they are a work in progress. Giving grace lifts everyone. Ramdas said, treat everyone you meet like God in drag. <laughs> Women's leadership coach, Dr. Margie Worrell, tells the story of attending a dinner where a waiter accidentally poured wine into someone's water glass. He realized immediately what he had done. He apologized profusely. He made it right. Nonetheless, this woman's displeasure overflowed, and she let him know it. Much later, as they were finishing their meal, the waiter returned and apologized again. I'm currently being treated for a tumor on my brain, he said. Sometimes I don't think very clearly, but I have to keep working, I need the money. The woman felt terrible. She expressed her sympathy and wished him well. 
but wouldn't it have been lovely if she could have gotten to grace a little sooner? Giving grace. We can show up with the very qualities we like to see more of in each other. When they go low, say it with me, we go high. Again, giving grace doesn't mean tolerating the intolerable or not holding bad behavior to account, especially bad behavior from those whom we entrust with competence and character. Giving grace means being faster to listen, slower to judge, willing to imagine exchanging places. American author Anne Lamott writes, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. I'm going to close with a story by MacArthur Fellow and author of Middle Passage, Charles R. Johnson. He opens the story by quoting the conclusion of a Rasmussen Report survey that 69% of Americans think the United States has become ruder and less civilized. And then he includes this from Lebanese American writer and artist Khalil Gibran. This is for you, Khala. I have learned silence from the talkative, toleration from the intolerant, and kindness from the unkind. Yet strange I am ungrateful to those teachers. The trouble started one evening in September, Charles Johnson begins, it was around six o'clock and I was sitting on one of the trees in my backyard watching a brace of pigeons splash wildly in our stone bird bath, beneath which a stone head of the Buddha rose up from the grass. I've always loved this hour of the day when the spill of afternoon light, so ethereal, filters through old growth trees in Wedgwood, a neighborhood of gentle slopes, gentle hills, a quiet, hidden oasis within Seattle, inhabited mainly by college professors and older, retired people. Here, you never feel you're in a big city with all those big city problems. I sat in a lazy lotus posture, the forefingers on each hand tipped against my thumbs. Behind me, floating on an almost hymnal silence, a few so soothing notes sounded from the wood chimes hanging from my house, accompanied by bird flutter and the rustle of leaves, I began to slowly drift into meditation, hoping today would bring at least a tidbit of spiritual discovery. But no sooner than I'd closed my eyes and felt the outside world fall away, the air was shattered by a hair-raising explosion of music booming from stereo speakers somewhere nearby, like a volcano exploding. Now, I love music, he continues, especially soft jazz. 
But this was heavy metal, techno pounding at 120 decibels, alternating with acid rock and sprinkled with gangster rap that sounded to my ears like rhymed shouting. The neighborhood shook with a tsunami of inquietude. Its energy was five billion times greater than that from the wood chimes. Our new neighbors. One or two hours went by. There was no escaping the bass beat that reverberated in my bones, the energy of the shrill profanity and angry lyrics. Wave upon wave, the pulsations came from across the street, intrusive, infectious, jangling, surrounding my home like a hand, squeezing a wine glass on the verge of shattering. And now, suddenly, I was having a bad day. Walking into the house, I saw my wife coming down the stairs, wearing her round reading glasses and looking dazed. She started shutting all the windows, but that didn't help. The sound curdled the air inside our house. What do you think we should do, I asked. Call 911? Oh no, she said, they're just kids. We were kids once, remember? Then suddenly her lips pouted and she looked hurt. Why are you shouting at me? Was I shouting? Yes, she said, you were yelling at me. I didn't realize how much I'd raised my voice in order to be heard over the mind-blaring music outside. She was, after all, only two feet away from me. Or that noise, despite all my decades of spiritual practice, could so quickly make me feel spent and flammable. I was no longer myself, though I suspected this was a teachable moment. So help me, I just wasn't getting it. I apologized to my wife. I knew she was right, as usual. We shouldn't call the police. Still, I wondered, who are these rude people, these invaders? I decided this was a good time to go shopping. With my wife's list of groceries, including a chocolate cake to celebrate the birthday of one of her friends at Mount Zion Baptist Church, I fled into the night, or more precisely, to the supermarket. As I put half a mile between myself and ground zero, as the pitch declined, I felt less agitated, though there was a slight ringing and seashell sound in my ears, lingering like a low-grade fever. Compared to my street, the supermarket was mercifully quiet. I bagged the groceries in paper, that would prove to be a big mistake, and hurried across the street to the drugstore to buy earplugs. Driving home, I was praying the neighbor's party was over, but even though my ears were plugged, I felt the density in the air before I heard the humping arc still flooding the neighborhood like a broken sewer main. Even worse, when I downshifted into my driveway, I had to hit the brakes because one of my neighbor's guests had parked there, a Chevy Blazer with an obscene bumper sticker. My first impulse was to let the air out of the tires, but then I realized it would only keep it there longer. So I parked two blocks away, loaded up my arms as high as my chin with four heavy bags of food, and that's when the big, fat raindrops began to fall. By the time I was 30 feet from my front door, 
The paper bags were soaking wet and falling apart. And sure enough, one began to give way, sending cans of sliced pineapples, rice, a bottle of maple syrup, tomatoes, milk, potatoes, and a bag of raisins cascading down the driveway, littering the street like confetti or a landfill. For the longest time, I stood there, sopping wet, watching my neighbor's guests flee inside to escape the rain, lost in the whirl of violent, invisible vibrations. And I was disabused forever of the vanity that three decades of practicing meditation had made me too civilized, too cultivated, or somehow immune to anger, desire, self-pity, pettiness. These would always arise, I saw, even without noise pollution. And then all at once, the music stopped. I slogged across the street, so tired I couldn't see straight. I climbed my new neighbor's stairs and banged on the front door with my fist. After a moment, it opened. Standing before me was possibly the most physically fit young man I had ever seen, young enough to be my son. His hair was a military buzz cut, his t-shirt olive colored, his ears large enough for him to wiggle if he wanted to. And on his arm, I saw a tattoo for the 4th Brigade of the 2nd Infantry Division he had served with. He looked me up and down as I stood dripping on his doorstep and asked politely, yes, sir, can I help you? We need to talk, I said. He squinted his eyes as if trying to read my lips. Then he put one hand behind his ear like an old, old man who had lost his hearing aid. What did you say, sir? I was less than a foot away from him. I felt as if I were coming to from a dream. A profound sadness swept over me, dousing my anger. Before me stood the unnecessary tragedy of hearing loss, maybe the result of a recent tour in Iraq or Afghanistan, maybe from an IED. I was humbled. I did not judge him or myself now because he had just taught me to listen better. I gestured with one finger held up for him to wait a moment and went back into the downpour. On the street, I found what I was looking for, grateful that its plastic lid had kept it from being ruined by the rain. I climbed the steps. Thank you, I said, giving him the chocolate cake. Welcome to Wedgwood. Beloved spiritual companions, we cannot understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are but does not leave us where it found us. Everyone we meet is fighting a battle.
we know nothing about. May we treat everyone like God in drag. Let us give one another grace, remembering to include ourselves. Be kind. Always. Amen. And now for our benediction, I'm going to invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. Adapted from the words of Judy Chicago. And then compassion will be wedded to power. And then softness will come to a world that is harsh and unkind. And then all will be gentle and all will be strong. And then the greed of some will give way to the needs of many. And then all will share equally in the earth's abundance. And then all will cherish earth's creatures. And then everywhere will be called Eden once again. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.